Welcome to Psychedelicast. Hosted by Clinton Cayley, this show is an interview-based podcast focused on offering listeners in-depth information concerning plant medicines, entheogens, and all subjects tangential to psychedelia. Join us in prying open the third eye. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Church of Infinite Possibilities, a.k.a. Psychedelicast. My name is Clinton Cayley, the host of this podcast. Thank you guys for joining us on this beautiful Sunday morning, hence the church pun. Glad you guys could be with us. We have a fascinating interview with you. As always, I think I've called every single interview that I've ever done fascinating. I just can't think of a better word. Uh, But the truth is, this is a very interesting one, particularly for those interested in safely... um, participating in plant medicine ceremonies stateside, um, I think you're going to find a lot of useful information here because I know that when I went to my first stateside plant ceremonies, these were some of the questions and concerns that I had, and we'll get into that in the episode, but today we are going to offer you an interview with two attorneys, uh, one Mr. Greg Lake and one Mr. Ian Benoit, both local Texans, Ian out of Austin, and Greg um, kind of moving all throughout Texas and Louisiana. Uh, really great guys. Really good to talk to them. Um, Greg Lake and Ian Benoit are both local Texans and servants of the plant medicine movement in America. They come from different backgrounds and offer unique insight into the legal processes behind entheogenic churches. Greg is the co-founder of the up-and-coming social media platform EntheoConnect and author of psychedelics and mental health series Psilocybin. Ian grew up in Hawaii and is a United States Army veteran who turned to plant medicine for healing upon returning home. Ian also served as a former general counselor to the Veterans for Natural Rights. Together, these two men offer years of experience in general litigation with special experience in the psychedelic arena. Super excited to uh, present this interview to you guys, one of the uh, more interesting ones that we've had. Before that, we got some stuff to talk about. Let's get into it. Well, guys, for those of you who have been following my personal journey, um, I appreciate that. I am actually recording this from one of the rooms, uh, the control suite here in my new job, uh, my new full-time job with a uh, brand new freestanding ER facility. I'm really glad to be back in the saddle, back at work. I enjoy my job, and I'm happy to be doing it again. Uh, So that's going well. Um, still living in my brother's garage, which I appreciate and I'm actually enjoying. I like living small. I like living cheaply. Uh, hopefully they'll allow me to stay there for a little bit longer, but uh, we'll be working out a new living situation shortly. Uh, beyond all that, not much to tell you guys. I mean, the personal stuff that we do normally comes out more in the No Trip Sitter episodes, uh, like the one you got last, uh, our last drop, episode 38, I believe. If you like those kind of episodes, if you like to hear my own personal writings, my own personal psychedelic experiences, and about my life as it relates to the psychedelic experience, you should check us out on Patreon. Uh, our psychedelic cast Psychonauts there on Patreon. Um, it's, a, it's a growing community. It's still quite small, but I appreciate each and every member. Uh, you're getting a lot of extra content there. You're going to get those really personal and uh, introspective, no-trip-sitter episodes that generally aren't released on the free feed. 
Um, you're also going to get an opportunity to come on the show yourself, tell your own stories, share your psychedelic experiences, as well as commune with a with a group of like-minded individuals. Um, I also share video segments of these audio recordings. For instance, this interview in video format has been available for Patreon members only for well over a week, probably closer to two weeks. They also have the next episode I'm going to release already in video format. So joining the Patreon offers a lot of value for the price. We only ask $3 a month to enter the void with us at www.patreon.com slash psychedelicast. You can support the show, you can support me, and you can access our uh, exclusive content early there. And as we all know, this is a tough time in the American economy and in the worldwide economy due to COVID. So if you cannot afford to monetarily support the show, I totally understand. Um, there are a lot of things I would like to support myself that I just financially am unable to do so. But if you'd like to support us otherwise, you can follow us on social media. Facebook, we're at Psychedelicast. On Instagram, we're at Psychedelicast Pod. Our original Instagram account was deactivated at 2.7 thousand followers. We're trying to rebuild. We're coming up on 200 followers, but it takes a long time to build out social media accounts. And when one of them is arbitrarily uh, deactivated with no reason, it kind of stings. And it's a process to rebuild that. So follow us there on Instagram. Help me out by rebuilding my following there. You can also subscribe to this show on the podcatcher of your choice. You can leave us some stars in the review area and say some nice things or some shitty things, whichever you prefer. Uh, it's just like your opinion, man. So uh, to quote the great uh, Jeffrey Lebowski. Um, but yeah, if you can't afford the Patreon um, support, then we love to have you support us via social media accounts and sharing the show with your friends and family and the community at large. Thank you so much for doing that. Let's get into our psychedelic news, and then we'll hear from Greg Lake and Ian Benwees. I probably butchered his last name, but uh, we'll hear from Greg and Ian here in just a few minutes. Thanks, guys. In psychedelic news today, we're going to offer you an article from NewScientist.com. Title of the article being Benefits of Microdosing Psychedelic Drugs May Be Due to Placebo Effect. This was written on March the 3rd, 2021 by Claire Wilson. Claims that microdoses of psychedelic drugs like LSD or the active ingredient of magic mushrooms bring mental benefits may be due to the placebo effect. Microdosing is a term for when people regularly take small amounts of drugs, such as LSD. Users say it doesn't get them high, but makes them more creative, sharper, or improves their mental health in some way. They may take 10 to 20% of a normal dose a few times a week. Some trials suggest larger doses of psychedelics can help relieve anxiety, depression, and other mental health conditions, but microdoses have been tested only in small, placebo-controlled trials with mixed results. The placebo effect is when people gain physical or mental benefits from medical treatments due to the power of expectation. Because it's hard to get permission for research where people are given illegal drugs, Balaz Zgedi at an Imperial College London and his colleagues came up with an unusual trial design. They used internet forums to contact people who were already frequently microdosing at home using LSD, the magic mushroom compound psilocybin, or similar drugs usually bought online. 
the researchers didn't analyze the difference in effects based on the drugs participants were using. Participants were sent empty medical capsules in the post that they could open to insert a small piece of drug-impregnated paper. When reclosed, the loaded pills looked the same as empty ones. The 191 volunteers put the drug into some of their capsules, then put them in batches into envelopes printed with QR codes and shuffled the envelopes so they no longer knew which contained the drugs. A third of the participants took only the drug microdoses for four weeks, one third got placebo capsules, and another third got half and half. The volunteers shouldn't have been able to tell from the envelopes what they were taking, but the researchers could find out by analyzing the QR codes at the end of the trial. The volunteers also took objective online tests to measure mental acuity and answered subjective questionnaires about their mood and experiences, as well as recording their guesses as to whether they had taken the drug or placebo. All three groups experienced similar improvements in their long-term psychological and cognitive outcomes over the four weeks. People who took the real drug showed incredibly small benefits in their survey answers about mood and creativity in tests done a few hours after dosing, says Segetti, but only on the subjective tests. There was no benefit seen in the objective tests. In addition, these effects were most pronounced in people who were good at guessing if they had had the real drug, probably due to a mild noticeable effect, suggesting even these small benefits could have been due to the placebo response, says Skeddy. But the trial may not be the final word on microdosing, partly because the volunteers weren't supervised by clinicians. Bernard Hommel at Leiden University in the Netherlands says the trial also may have found more of an effect if the researchers had measured people's creativity using objective tests rather than simply asking people if they felt creative. Everyone says that about microdosing, and that's what we as scientists want to know. So for those of you who are microdosing, maybe you can hit us up on the social media or join us on the Patreon and tell us about your experiences with microdosing. I've dabbled uh, probably uh, a year ago for a little bit. Um, I found it interesting. I can tell you that a former partner of mine had very uh, noticeable, claimed to have very noticeable effects from microdosing psilocybin. And I believe this partner um, and my former partner's experience with uh, microdoses and macrodoses of psilocybin, uh, this person claimed that they dramatically altered their, uh, their life and their anxiety level. So um, I myself would have to experiment a little further, but I'm, um, open and, I'm open and interested to the possibility. With all that being said, let's welcome Ian and Greg, two attorneys from out of Texas, to the show to discuss entheogenic churches and legality. gray and uh oh yeah yeah of course all right guys well um greg and ian welcome to psychedelicast thank you guys for taking time out of your busy schedules to join me appreciate you guys being open to doing a group chat as well that's pretty cool yeah thank thanks for having us um pleasure to be here 
Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah. Why don't we Why don't we just start with brief introductions, um, Greg? I'm a little bit more familiar with you just because I've kind of been following this, the things you've been working on. We're connected right. through some people through USNT, and uh, Ian, I'm not so familiar with you, but from the little bit I do know, your story sounds quite interesting. Um, so, Greg, you want to start off, and then uh, Ian, we'll we'll hear from you. Just introductions. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Greg Lake, um, I. Uh, I'm a trial and appellate lawyer. I'm based out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, I guess my foray into the, well, I've, I've been a fan and, and consumer of, of, you know, entheogenic psychedelic substances for quite some time. But I guess my foray into this space uh, really occurred this last June. I published my first book, uh, Psychedelics and Mental Health Series, Psilocybin, which is basically uh, all the psilocybin research through February 2020 as it relates to mental health uh kind of in one reference. Um, so once I did that, that's when this whole, you know, while we're here kind of, kind of popped up, uh, uh, doing the entheogenic church work. And, uh, you know, I started out on one project and then kind of got my feet wet and then it, you know, snowballed in a good way. And, and now I've done, you know, well over 10 projects in the entheogenic church space. Um, and, I'm about to publish my next book, hopefully within a week, uh, on the law of entheogenic churches in the U.S. And then, uh, as you're well aware, I've also been developing the Entheo Connect platform. So uh, that's kind of where I'm at in this space. And then, obviously, Ian uh, has been a longtime attorney uh, in this space as well. Okay, great, great. Thanks. Ian, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I uh, grew up in Hawaii and had my first round of work with these medicines after I got out of the Army, where I'd flown Black Hawk helicopters in Panama. And then when I was reintegrating, you know, back into uh, society, I knew to use these things because I'd you know, grown up around them in Hawaii and did that enough to become a you know good father and husband and raise a family. And then in... Uh, 2014, I connected with veterans around cannabis and healing and PTSD and all the stories of people coming back on the meds and, you know, uh, hitting the alcohol and, you know, su suicides and all these other things. And I, uh, yeah, jumped back into the medicines for myself. And in that process, I helped start an Aquavon Native American church and then helped start a uh, Santo Daime church and I've been uh, doing this now for a couple of years and kind of like Greg, really in the past recent time, uh, people have started really wanting to build these churches. And uh, I've been doing the same thing, helping people start some of these uh, psychedelic churches. And now that it's going uh, mainstream, we're getting to all together and talk, get together and talk about it. Yes. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so I've written down some questions here I want to ask you guys, and you guys can go th both kind of like hash it out between you, and and I'll join in where I'm uh, where I'm able, but I'm not knowledgeable on this stuff. Um, I'll tell you kind of where this plays into my life. Um, I ha have done majority of my ceremonies uh, with plant medicines abroad in other countries where they're legal and or protected. I'm assuming that you guys are about to tell me that these medicines are also legal and or protected here in the states as well. Um, however, it may be a little bit more blurry than that. Um, so most of my experience with, with ceremonial plant medicine has been abroad. 
I've done some here with the USNT, the Universal Shamans of the New Tomorrow here in outside of Houston that I'm, I'm assuming both of you are familiar with. Um, and one of my concerns was when I first went there is are like basically just in a dumbed down way, are the police going to raid this place in the middle of my trip and cause me to have this horrifying experience that I do not want to have? So I kind of went into the ceremony with a slight trepidation, although mm -hmm. once I got there and I saw the grounds and I got a feel for the people, that cleared up, mostly cleared up for me, and I ended up having a, a wonderful experience there. And now I've had uh, other experiences with them as well. Um, so as someone who's not trying to start an entheogenic church, but someone who is interested in visiting them for my own consciousness expansion, healing, um, and, and personal spiritual practices, that's where this all plays into, into my life. And I'm assuming that'll be the majority of our listeners as, as the actual participant, as opposed to the, um, uh, supplier of the experience. So I think the best place to start, um, would be with the question, what is an entheogenic church? Uh, you want me to go ahead, Ian, or? Yeah, sure, man. Okay, well, you know, I guess in my definition, entheogenic church would basically be a church that, uh, through the consumption of entheogens, uh, you know, communes with a higher spiritual force. I mean, that's basic definition. And, tech, you know, generally, one of the foundational beliefs that I usually run into, which I, t I agree with, is that, you know, uh, the creator placed these natural entheogenic substances here, uh, you know, on earth uh, for us to consume, to commune with these higher spiritual forces in order to, you know, answer specific life questions, overarching life questions, under understand man's place in the cosmos, the nature of reality, things like that. But yeah, so at the base level, it's just a, a, a church that, you know, consumes these substances as part of their uh, communion with the divine. Excellent. Um, maybe, Ian, you can touch on this. What do one of these churches normally look like? Like, I know what USNT looks like, and I know what it looks like to go do a traditional ceremony, say, for instance, in the Peruvian jungle. But uh, what are you guys seeing as far as how these churches just kind of uh, what, what the what the visitor can expect when uh, visiting one of these churches? Well, I think that's part of the whole issue, here, Clinton, is that uh, prohibition keeps a lot of these discussions and connections between these different kind of churches uh, from from being made. So. Some of us have, uh, like you said, like had experiences in South America, and then others have gotten to have experiences here in the U.S., and it really depends on what uh, congregation of these churches you have. You've got the UDV and Santo Daime, which are just, you could call them, you know, jurisprudentially, Supreme Court jurisprudence, Supreme Court ruling law has identified those as something viable, but then there's lots of other different kinds of churches that are organized around different sacraments or multi-sacraments. And, uh, but, but ultimately like you know, Greg was saying before, they're all entheogenic churches where they're using these sacraments to practice their religion and the specific ways in which they're doing them, you know, are, are unique, uh, to those, to those traditions and sacraments, but they're, they're all, fall under the, you know, the rubric and, and protection uh, of that uh, uh, entheogenic church model. 
And uh, this is what we're doing is really finding those, you know, meeting those people as they're going live and wanting to uh, build their specific church with the, with the, their set of sacraments. And that's what we're helping people do, you know, figure out how to do that so that they can uh, commune with source in the way that's most appropriate for them. Sure. Um, I was familiar with Santo Daime uh, in a cursory knowledge when I went to Brazil. I spent the last few months in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, a friend that I had made there showed me the Santo Daime church there in Brazil, and it was like it was like a, a, a smaller version of Lakewood. It was like a massive complex, wow. and in the inside, like they their website is like a any super church you would see in America. It's just a huge complex facility and uh, their services are led by a full band. And uh, the way she explained it to me is that you go in, you you get your, your dose of the sacrament, you sit down in your chair, you're quiet and you have your experience, the music plays. If you need help, someone comes and helps you. It's very, uh, I, I found it very strange to see ayahuasca particularly used in that uh, style of in that setting, I thought, I don't think I would be very comfortable in that setting yeah. personally. Um, but th- but that's just an aside to, to speak on a, a scene in almost super church, a super entheogenic church there in Sao Paulo, which I found very interesting. I didn't visit. Um, a friend of ours did actually, and she had quite a, a rough experience. She didn't, she, well, you know, rough is relative or bad trip is relative. I hate to even use that term, but uh, I'm sure at this point she's kind of figured it out. But when she mm-hmm. came back the next day, she was in some, she was somewhat shaken from her experience, which I mean, if you're not shaken from ayahuasca, you, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's pretty, it's a pretty shaking experience. Um, so are there many such organizations active in the U S right now? Many indigenous churches um, currently mm-hmm. operating in the U S um, I'll just you know, go, go ahead, Ian. Well, yeah, I think that's a big unknown question, right? Yeah. Uh, we've both helped some of these, but there's no way to really nationally uh, search this. I've, you know, uh, Greg and I talk about this. There, there, uh, at the 2010 census, there were 15 million churches in Texas for 30 million people. So, wow. yeah, so, so there's probably more Madison churches than we're all aware of, but it's really hard to know since it's uh, mostly underground. And, and of the UDV and Santo Daime churches, only a couple of them have actually filed, and we'll probably get deeper into more of this as we go, but they've filed for their exemption where they've filed with the government to say, we exist and we want your recognition that we are entitled to bring our uh, medicine across the country. But yeah, no one knows, and that's a big part of what we're doing Two is helping to connect these different entheogenic churches together to be able to share best practices, to be able to mitigate risk together by communicating and, you know, being on the same page. And, uh, yeah, we're all figuring it out as we go. Greg, you had something to to input there as well? Uh, Yeah, well, you know, again, just on the sheer number, I mean, it's it's really hard to tell. You know, we, me and I, Ian are obviously aware of a lot of, you know, churches that are, it's kind of on a spectrum too, you know, you have some that have been filed with the state, done their paperwork, you have a lot that have no paperwork and are just kind of, you know, medicine tribes or groups operating, so it's kind of hard to tell the number, but 
you know, I guess from my best estimation, I can say for sure that it's growing at a fairly rapid, rapid rate. Um, and so, you know, I guess getting these people, you know, when, when you bring these places above board, I think it also brings a certain level of accountability to them uh, that, you know, now they're kind of, you know, not public public, but, you know, they're above above ground with their practice and that, you know, they, they tell they seek people to come to their their ceremonies, you know, and so. You know, I think there's a good there's a, there's an element of good that comes with with that, you know, that extra layer of accountability, because, you know, with an underground ceremony. Something could happen and, and maybe nobody is held accountable for it, you know, and I think when you come above ground, it adds a little bit to that. I agree. And maybe this is a good point to sort of uh, sidestep and intro uh, your Entheo Connect project, which we're going to talk mm-hmm. in greater detail with. Uh, we plan to talk in greater detail with your uh, business partner, uh, Hector, in a later mm-hmm. episode. But uh, is Entheo Connect going to try to be, I, from my understanding, it'll be a platform that tries to help connect these churches and people and groups that, that are uh, involved in entheogenic medicine? Yeah, so, you know, obviously half of it's gonna, a social media platform, a forum, uh, and then the other half will be, you know, these entheogenic churches, ceremonies, retreats, uh, and then also service providers like, you know, integration, uh, breath work, things like that, that are ancillary to, you know, this space. But yeah, so, you know, first off, I'm going to do my best with my knowledge in this space, you know, to make sure that, you know, the people who are on there is someone that I would, you know, a place I would send someone to, right? I'm not just going to let someone come and fill out a form uh, and then list on the website, right? It's going to be someone I personally talk to, uh, to, to vet them. And then, yeah, and I'm hoping on the forum, that's where people will be able to discuss their experiences at these various places uh, to, yeah, add an extra layer of accountability. And, you know, at the end of the day, hopefully the, the quality of the, the services, uh, you know, at these churches will, will raise or get raised, you know, as a consequence of that. Sure, sure. And I think that's a good thing you guys are working on there to uh, kind of put uh, a dedicated network into place mm-hmm. for, for people in groups like this. Um, so let's get a little deeper into the actual legality of which I'm going to tell you guys, I am absolutely ignorant. So just explain this as if you were talking to a dumbass like me, (laughs) um, is it difficult to become a legal or legitimate entheogenic church in the U S or in the state of Texas? And later I was going to ask you guys about federal and state, the difference between federal and state. So maybe just in a general sense, is it difficult to become an entheogenic, uh, a legitimate entheogenic church in the U.S.? You know, I would say, you know, as far as the the hardest part of it is logistically setting up ceremonies and, and doing it correctly. As far as the paperwork is concerned, you know, it's mostly uh, getting the organizational structure together, filing the paperwork with the state to be a nonprofit church. Uh, and then you have an internal document. That's all your belief systems. Uh, all that structure talks about the internal church structure um, and, and some other items that are discussed in there. And then obviously you have bylaws that govern the internal uh, workings of the church. So, I mean, that's it. So I would say really the most difficult or uh, laborious part of it is actually, you know, getting the ceremonies going, right? Like getting the property, getting uh, who you're going to serve the medicine, getting the medicine. There's a lot of work that goes in that. So, and obviously we don't deal with that hardly at all, but um, that would probably be the hardest part of it uh, is, is actually doing it. Okay. Um, 
Ian, you can jump in at any time if you, if you have something to input. Yeah, um, yeah, I, 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 I agree that that's really the hardest part. That we're protected inherently under the First Amendment. This is our natural right. Like Greg said, these are gifts from the Creator for us to use. And then it's called building the container and then building the protocols and processes so that everyone is best protected and everyone has the best chance to have the most meaningful, safe uh, experience. So Now, you mentioned something about um, gathering medicines or moving medicines, things to that, to that effect. Um, I would assume that that would be a problem as well, whereas if you're, even if your church is legal and legitimate, um, I would assume that a different set of rules apply to specifically the medicine itself, maybe before it's in your possession, or how does, can you speak to that at all? So I guess what we would mostly be talking about are medicines coming across the border, right? Like the makings for ayahuasca or, you know, you have some San Pedro come across, um, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, without a DEA exemption, certified government paperwork, you can't guarantee that those things are just going to pass through customs. Everything's going to be hunky-dory. And, you know, the thing is, is that even though a lot of these churches have the paperwork in order and everything's good, it's a whole nother aspect to have to pay a lawyer to go sue the government officials in court uh, to return your sacraments, right? So, you know, that's the thing is that, uh, and what a lot of these churches, the difference between them and government paperwork is attorney fees. Um, but yeah, so again, the, they are operating in a protected manner, all that's good, but again, when these things get seized, it's having the, the money together to pay a lawyer to go and collect them and to get your exemption. Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tricky thing in different places have different ways, uh, that they get them. Some of them might have shamans that come in already with it. Uh, some might, you know, have them coming across the border. There's all kinds of different ways they go about it, but that's generally what the concerns are, you know, stuff coming across the border, uh, sure. as far as go. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this guy, Dave Hodges, out of Oakland. Have you heard his name before? Yes, I have. Is he the one with the, the Zion or uh, what, what was it called? Um, his Zydor. Zydor. Zydor, yeah. Yeah. He was my previous guest and uh, quite an interesting character, quite an interesting <laughs> fellow. And uh, he's, he's, he's experimenting with like uh, ounce, ounce doses of dried psilocybin, like, like 30 grams of psilocybin. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Like so he's, personally? He's, yes, he's personally oh, okay. taking 15, 20, 25, 30 gram doses of psilocybin. And we went into that and we talked about it. But he also started um, – his claim is the first – I want to say uh, – I, I don't know if I should – I think he, his claim is the Oakland's first psilocybin and cannabis church. Um, either way, they were raided uh, late last year, and all of his growing mushroom cultivation equipment was seized. Any any cannabis was seized. They literally had like a, a like a wall of gun safes that were loaded with all of their sacrament and all, all the things mm -hmm. they used to cultivate. And uh, the Oakland PD came in and cut the all these safes open, took all their stuff out. It, it's pretty wild, like as far mm -hmm. as the operation itself, and then uh, the lengths they went to basically dismantle this very peaceful, uh, this very peaceful program that Dave was putting together. 
I didn't know if you guys were familiar with that case or not, but it's pretty interesting. He's he's taking them to court and fighting fighting with them, and he's already won several other litigations uh, pertaining to cannabis and things like that. So, mm-hmm. just an aside there. Um, so, can you tell me about some of the specific laws that protect our rights to use entheogens in a religious context? I know you guys just mentioned the the uh, First Amendment. Obviously, that would be you know come right to the forefront, but. Uh, what are some of the things that people do need to have in place um, in order to operate this kind of thing? And I guess you guys kind of just touched on that briefly in your last yeah. statement. But if you can elaborate on that or, Ian, if either one of you guys want to elaborate a little bit more on like. Yeah, yeah, I can get it. And so, you know, it is the First Amendment, but actually it's the First Amendment embodied at the – and let's talk about the federal level first. The federal level – it's the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act, which came as a consequence of a peyote decision from the U.S. Supreme Court, I think in the late 80s, uh, that said that laws of general applicability, in this case a state unemployment law, but in, and for our purposes a controlled substances law that applies all the way across the board, If basically if it incidentally burdens religion, then it's still constitutional. Well, Congress did not like that decision at all. So about two or three years later, in a large bipartisan bill, the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act said no. As a matter of fact, even laws of general applicability that incidentally affect you know, a religion, the government has to prove that they have a compelling governmental interest uh, and that it's the least restrictive means of protecting that interest. So it's basically this, is that it's, and it's either the religious adherent is either going to be a claimant, like suing the government, or a defendant. The government arrests them. So, but it's up to them to prove that the law or the government's exercise or the government's actions substantially burden their sincere religious exercise. So, uh, again, a lot of this can go towards the sincerity of a religious practice, right? Uh, but really, when we when we break down the case law, the burden to prove to prove that it's it's sincere. Uh, isn't extremely high, but there are some parameters there, right? But once they prove that and they prove that it's been substantially burdened, then it flips to the government uh, and they have to show a compelling governmental interest. And basically what that amounts to uh, is that the, the, the health and safety, there, there, is a, there is an extreme risk to the health and safety of the church members uh, and or that there is a diversion risk for the substances, right? And there's a whole nother you know, equation that goes there. But, you know, like with the UDV and Santo Dime opinions, the, the, the courts basically said that, you know, the, the safety evidence for ayahuasca, even though it at that time was in its infancy, uh, they still said the government couldn't carry its burden as it related to ayahuasca uh, in that, you know, the, the, uh, the potential for diversion for ayahuasca was low. There's not a huge illicit market for it. It's big, bulky in these jugs, like only, and that's one thing that these churches got to look out for is that only certain higher up church officials are able to handle the sacraments, right? And and, and another thing, people should never be leaving the ceremony with sacraments, right? Everything needs to be consumed there in the ceremony, then everybody leaves. If there's sacraments left over, great, but they need to be stored uh, in a secure manner, right? Uh, so that's basically how it goes at, at the federal level. Now, 21 states have also enacted an analogous statute. Many of them mirror that language. Some of them have slightly different language, but more or less they were enacted to you know, mirror the federal protections. 
Um, now, there are some states that did not enact a Religious Freedom and Restoration Act, and I'll talk about a New Hampshire case, is that some of the state's constitutions already provided just as much, if not better, uh, religious protections, therefore vitiating the need uh, to you know, pass the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act, like in New Hampshire. They didn't have a, a Religious Freedom and Restoration Act, but maybe about two or three months ago, a case went up to their Supreme Court where an ONAC member was found to have psilocybin mushrooms and some religious items in a safe in his home. Uh, he moved to dismiss it under the state constitution, and the, the district court said no, no dice, you know, and he got convicted. Well, the, the Supreme Court in New Hampshire basically went through the history of their state constitution and came and said, no, our constitution requires the same analysis as the Religious Freeman, Federal Religious Freedom and Restoration Act uh, and kicked it back down to the trial court. So, you know, the state level, you know, it's, it's a little bit different everywhere you go. But for the most part, I think most states would have just as much, if not a little more protection, the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act. But it's always something that needs to be accounted for when anyone's thinking about forming uh, an entheogenic church. Okay, yeah, that's a lot. Go ahead, Ian. Yeah, Quinn, let me yeah, jump in there. Is it exactly? So even if the states haven't passed their own version of RIFRA, or like, like uh, Greg was saying in New Hampshire, have in their own constitution, you know, an even higher standard than the U.S. Constitution, by, you know, the Supremacy Clause, basically every state has to follow at least that minimum standard of that federal protection. So whether there's a RIFRA in the state or not, the states have to give at least that much protection. And that's what they're saying in New Hampshire. The state said, oh, we have even more protection. So, you know, you're good to go. But everyone in the United States gets that minimum level of protection automatically in every state they're in, at least through the federal uh, overlay. So. Um. So I'm interested to know, um, like like we I kind of just uh, spoke on earlier about uh, Dave Hodges and his church being raided. What would lead someone to raid one of these churches? It w I would assume it would be ignorance of the law, or why would these police forces? Um, why would someone do this? Why would someone raid one of these churches and cause them all this uh, legal issue? Well, well I'll, I'll jump in. It. Yeah, go, go ahead, Ian. Yeah, I'm Jimmy Greg, man, you can, like, correct my... Yeah, my, yeah, my, yeah, no, you're good. I, I, th I think the challenge is in, in, in the Oakland, right, this is under the scenario where you've got these, you know, municipalities decrimming all these different psychedelics. So I, I, I you know, I, I don't know the gentleman. You, you got to meet him, Clinton, you said. But so he's, in one way, testing this, this these, these laws, right, by being in a... In a in a, in a city, Oakland, where they're decrimmed, and he's like, okay, now I'm going to practice my church more openly. So we're not seeing these kind of scenarios happen all across the country with these medicine churches. This seems to be to be a more unique scenario where, because it's decrimmed, they're willing to find out and, and test it, and uh, you know, kind of kind of see what happens. Because as Greg pointed out, this person's had litigation in their area, so. <laughs> It's not, it's not something that people, even though people are concerned about it, it's not something that's happening around the country where local or federal authorities are out trying to actively, uh, you know, bust these ceremonies. And, uh, you know, in my impression of that case, Clinton, and I could be wrong, most everything I got was through the news or speaking with others, but 
I think what happened there is that even though it was a church, either directly in a roundabout way, it more or less amounted to some type of retail sales of sacraments. Uh, and like I said earlier, anything leaving the ceremony side is no bueno for religious protection. Um, and again, I could be wrong, but that's kind of what I took from the information I had gathered. Uh, and if that's the case, then that's why that happened, right? Because people leaving the... Now, obviously with marijuana in, in California might not have been a, a, a deal, but... Uh, you know, obviously, even with the decrim, retail sales is is banned, and so um, mm -hmm. that is, in my impression, what happened there. But otherwise, yeah. I mean, it, it should have been legitimate and protected. But you know, well, and, but in one yeah, more thing, look. yes, there are a lot of incompetent law enforcement officers out there who do not understand the ins and outs uh, of this religious freedom uh, laws, and so that obviously could amount to some people getting wrongfully. Uh, you know, arrested. And, and and this is a question I'll ask uh, for for you, Greg. It's like there's uh, that there that as far as trying to be this clean defendant, right, where they're going to argue the merits of their religious sincerity, having retail sales exist at your facility because you're saying, hey, under the law for decrim that can exist. That just clouds you know, the judicial analysis, right, around your legitimacy. It's like, if you're legitimately doing this, why are you mixing these other things in there when it's not that you're not entitled to, or it's, you know, it's just, what, what's, why are you compromising your religious position by, you know, engaging in these other activities if you're ever going to get busted? Mm -hmm. so. Um, and yeah, like Greg was saying, I don't know if that's the case. He didn't mention anything about that to me mm -hmm. um, during during our interview. That may be the case, um, yeah. but uh, I'm un, I'm ignorant to that information. Well, I, I read I read the same thing like Greg did. Just what was available, you know, on the reports online, and that there was, uh, you know, you look at it and call it diversion. There was basically separate from people giving the sacrament to people in the church. There was sales of same said sacrament. Uh, going on at the location based on, you know, the the stuff they found there when they when they uh, raided the place. Yeah, I, I heard it. I thought I read it was microdosing kids that he was. <laughs> that's, that's that's what I thought I remember reading. But you that's a good possibility. Wrong. That yeah, that never came that that never came up in our conversation. But that's a possibility. But I can tell you, this dude isn't doing microdoses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, dude. No he was telling me he was telling me about some of his uh, trips, and I was like, "Whoo, I've been to some far out places, brother, but I don't know if I want to go 30, 30 dry grams yeah. deep." Man. <laughs> yeah, it's a, that's a whole I'll, different, I'll, whole another level. Yeah, I'll jump in and just say because Greg references before, you know, these Oklahoma Native American church cases. You had two of them, like the one in Hawaii and one in California, where they both lost. But the courts were able to point to the defendants themselves and say, you guys aren't good defendants, so we don't ever have to rule on the merits of the case of your religious sincerity. Whereas in New Hampshire, the defendants were legit, and that helped the case stand on its own on its religious merits. So if you're ever going to have one of these scenarios where law enforcement gets involved, you want to be as squeaky clean as possible and not have them have any basis to be like, no, you're doing stuff outside of what mm -hmm. the church 
I do by these other things that are set up here. That's yeah. Um, what is the in the case that something like this happens, um, and and people have to go to court or organizations have to go to court? How how much so does the government uphold these laws? And does it always come down to variables like being squeaky clean, um, or can we expect our government to respect these laws as is and protect us and protect our freedoms? How how does it usually go down? So you know, to be honest with you, Clint, there's not not just a ton of decisions on this. I mean, we have the two Santo Dime UDV. Uh, he talked about these other Ninth Circuit cases that were obviously squeaky clean. But so right now, I'll talk about current litigation that's pending. That's important. Uh, SoulQuest Mother of Ayahuasca Church, kind of like that super church you mentioned earlier. Uh, yeah, they sued the DEA um, in Florida uh, for their, you know, exemption. And I read an order today sometime, I think by like mid-April, there should be an agreement there. Um, and that's a whole nother standard. But I mean, I will say that if they get their uh, exemption that gives us as attorneys and people in the space a lot of information on what's going to fly and what's going to not, right? 100 people ceremonies, thousand dollars a piece, you know. Uh, and then also, too, the one that I've really been monitoring very closely and that I'm very fond of the attorney is the Arizona Yage case, which was filed in California but got transferred to, um, to, to Arizona to the district court there. And that basically involves the Arizona Yage Assembly, um, and then also the North American Association of Visionary Churches. I want to talk about them because this is a very important thing that I think if it goes through in this case will be great for the whole space. So basically what happened is that the Arizona Yage Assembly and other churches are part of this North American Association of Visionary Churches. It's like a master nonprofit, right? Um, well, the Arizona Yage Assembly you know, when they read the DEA exemption process, they said, well, look at this. This thing is illegal and unconstitutional. And guess what, DEA? They wrote them a letter and said, you know, I'm not applying for your process and went and filed a lawsuit. Uh, in retaliation, it is alleged that the DEA had the Maricopa County Sheriff's Department, uh, you know, raid the leader's home of the Arizona Yage. They didn't arrest him, but they took his sacraments, his money, and all this. So what you need to understand is that at the federal level, if a federal agent substantially burdens your religious rights, A, you can sue them personally for, for money damages in court, and B, uh, you're entitled to get all your attorney fees and costs back uh, if you win that case. And so the, what, we, what we have seen and what we might see in the future is the DEA trying to pressure with federal funds uh, these local law enforcement jurisdictions to do their dirty work. So in that case, the, what the North American Association of Visionary Churches is trying to do is to say, look, court, we are this organization of visionary churches. We have these safety standards. We have these substance handling standards that we keep our sacraments safe. And what they want is that the, 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 the court give that master organization the exemption. So that way, all the churches under their umbrella will also be exempted so they can import the sacraments and then distribute it to their member churches, uh, you know, as needed. And so I'm hoping that that is something that flies there because, I mean, for one, it'll, it'll save the taxpayers money, uh, you know, to end a lot of this litigation that's going on. And also to not tie up the DEA and doing religious exemptions one by one. 
Uh, but most importantly, it's the safety and substance handling standards. You know, that way, you know, when you go to a ceremony, uh, you know, under one of these umbrella organizations that you know that there's going to be a certain level of screening and, and care taken of you, uh, you know, in some standards there. So that's that's why I'm really watching that close. Uh, and I like the way that their lawyer laid their case out. Uh, and so that's that's my favorite. But both of these cases will give us a lot of information uh, once they they, you know, come to finality. So it sounds like that's going to be a good a good legal precedent where there aren't very many at this time. Exactly. Um, it, it absolutely will. Um, I've been hearing a lot of chatter concerning cannabis legalization at the federal level. What do you guys think about that right now? Is it? it I mean, this, there's been this hype around it before. It seems like, and it just kind of never comes to fruition. Are we are we getting closer? I, I sure hope so. You know, this Moore Act would move cannabis from Schedule One to Schedule Three, and yet we've got Marinol, which was approved in 1985, synthetic THC, and came off Schedule and came off Schedule One to Schedule Three in 1999. So the Moore Act would just say plant-based THC is on the same schedule that uh, synthetic THC has been since. Uh, yeah, for, for over for over 20 years. Uh, but it seems like the time is totally right to do that. And so I'm, I'm super encouraged. I really want to see full descheduling and the right to grow, you know, so full descheduling with decrim, how long that's all going to take, uh, you know, uh, yeah, and anyone's guess is as good as mine. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear what you guys think on how <laughs> – how quickly the because the, it's the scheduling artifice has been around since the 70s with Nixon, and uh, it's been used to oppress people and oppress people of, of color, minorities, and basically, you know, uh, this is where we ended up with all these private prisons and poor race relations and poor community relations because of this whole scheduling artifice. And this is the same schedule artist that keeps 5-MeO-DMT and DMT as Schedule 1 drugs that we're all making. So every person in the United States is guilty of at least two Schedule 1 drug uh, possessions and, and manufacture. So, uh, yeah, I, I hope it's soon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I haven't followed it too closely, Clint. I mean, I, I've heard musings and, and, you know, talking to, you know, some of the people I work with asked me about cannabis at the church, you know, which uh, – I'm not opposed to in any way. I mean, if it really furthers the ceremony or if you, they have a specific ceremony around it, um, you know, again, as long as they do not let people leave with it um, and it's stored safely, I don't see anything wrong on the religious part of it. But I tell them, though, I say every time I talk to them, I say, you know, this conversation might be moot by the end of the year, meaning that, you know, at the federal level, this might be in a whole different, you know, uh, category where, you know, what, whatever you would be facing is nothing like, you know, it is right now. And, and I hope so. I mean, because I think it will, as we've seen with the states, you know, first comes the marijuana and then now here we come with, you know, the natural uh, entheogens and stuff like that. So I would imagine on the federal level, eventually, and again, Washington, D.C. decrimmed, uh, uh, you know, uh, entheogenic plant medicines uh, this last election. So, you know, um, I think that they would soon follow, maybe assume, but, you know, within a reasonable amount of time, follow uh, that lead. Hey, Greg, I'll jump and ask you a question. What would be the importance for someone to have a cannabis-based 
entheogenic church, even let's say after God provides that you know this come, comes off the schedule and it's not you know that that's that's no longer in a mix. Why could that still be important to somebody? As far as their religion is concerned. In other words, so okay. The, the scheduling changes where they don't have to worry about that yeah. gov- the federal government having that lever against them because it's not, a, it's not scheduled, why would it still be important to have it as a religion still about that issue? I mean, to me, it would show sincerity that, you know, uh, regardless of the scheduling, this is part of our sacrament, a part of our, uh, you know, religious practice. And so uh, we're protected regardless. And even though it's descheduled now, uh, it's still part of our practice, and we still, you know, discuss it in our documents, stuff like that. That's what I would see. Yeah, it, it would protect it forever, right? And then if there were mm-hmm. state-level or federal-level regulations around uh, growing it or buying it or processing it, as mm-hmm. long as you're doing yeah. that all inside the church, you would not have to be subject to those laws. Mm-hmm. You could grow your own and you know, not have to follow you know, their, their rules. Their rule. mm-hmm. Yep. Um, um, so, so usually we, as we get toward the end of the, the episode, I like to ask my guests, hang on one second, I'm getting some gnarly feedback, you guys hear that? Okay, it's kind of clarifying. Sorry about that. Um, because I don't really know further questions to ask you guys, I would like to open the floor to you to kind of just to, to hash out anything that we haven't gone over yet. I'm also interested to hear maybe a little bit more about your personal entheogenic experiences that kind of led you into this work and led you into this world. So if you guys would like to discuss anything like that, feel free. You want, you want to go first, Ian? You want, go ahead. Yeah, I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to figure out exactly where to start. I, I think the good news is, is that psychedelics are finally mainstream now. You've got, you know, MDMA and psilocybin is both... Uh, exceptional therapies, right, designated by the FDA. You've got this, um, you know, money for the phase three clinical trials. You've got uh, the Sunday section of the New York Times, ayahuasca veterans, PTSD, and Michael Paul's book. So this stuff's happening, and now all this uh, money's coming in. And I don't talk about something is that you have now Shakruna, uh, with Dia Labate, uh, they're doing a project to raise money to pay for legal fees, the kind of same legal fees that uh, Craig was talking about earlier, for a church, an, an ayahuasca church, that the church of the eagle and the condor that's had its medicine seized. They want to build the case and then you know, file for the exemption for that entity and then share that information with others so that we can all, all, any of these churches that are using medicine can, again, like leverage those, ex, those experiences, those best practices. And when that's happening at a very public level, it's a big shift because Greg knows this has all been underground. You don't hear about these things. You don't hear about how many churches there are, who's filing for their exemptions. It's really all underground. And so now it's just, it's really kind of come, come mainstream and, and the time to organize around this is, is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with Ian wholeheartedly, you know, um, you know, for me, a lot of a lot of my involvement in this space uh, is because of my religious practice with the plants. You know, I um, 
you know, I went through rehab for three years. I was in a rehab, uh, you know, and when I got out in, in 2018, uh, I started to work with the psilocybin again, really as a self-improvement relapse prevention program, you know, self-assessed. And, um, you know, that's kind of where all my inspiration to jump into this space came from. And I mean, once I got sober and started dealing with the medicine, like it hit me on such a different level. Like it just like completely opened me up. Um, and then I started studying these spirituality concepts, things like that, and going to ceremonies. And um, it's just completely changed my life in such a such a great way that like, I, you know, a lot of the work I do here is truly in service uh, of, of these substances and of the people who, who bring them to the people, uh, like at these ceremonies, right? And so... You know, I, I, I hope the best, and I have very high hopes, especially for as far as the church exemptions go, uh, further developing that out. Um, and so I think we're going to see more and more over the next five years actual exempted churches operating, right, where it's going to be a, a you know pretty, like Ian keeps saying, mainstream thing. Um, and, you know, when, when COVID hit, it just pushed so many people uh, you know, to, to this space and it continues to, uh, on a daily basis. And I'm of the mindset that, you know, a lot of people get that internal call to the medicine. Uh, and then as they see these news stories, hear about ceremonies, then they are able to go and answer the call. Um, and more and more people are going there and, you know, I just want to be there to help, whether it be through Entheo Connect, uh, or through my church work, you know, I just want people to have that safe container, uh, for them to go and experience this, right? I mean, you know, what the literature says is that, you know, these substance, you know, they, they effectuate a primary religious experience, meaning, you know, you, you and the divine, you know, communing with each other. And, um, you know, I just feel like so many people in this world go through their entire life and never have an experience like that. I mean, look, there are natural ways to get there. Don't get me wrong, there are. Um, but I think in this day and age, with the, with the way that our society is structured, everybody's, you know, I want this, I want it now, that the only way a lot of people are ever going to be able to have that type of experience is, is through the entheogenic medicines. And if taken in a, in a proper container and received well, just completely changes people's lives and for the better, for the most part. And so, you know, I, I just want to be here and be of service uh, to try and help uh, people you know, through that process to, to get there and, and help them through it. Sure. And, you know, that's kind of how I feel. And that's kind of how this uh, podcast came about was uh, I was operating a different podcast at the time. And I had been using psychedelics since my mid to late teens mm -hmm. uh, and not in any kind of uh, psycho spiritual aspect. Just, you know, I started because a buddy of mine had some mushrooms. I took the mushrooms, mm -hmm. uh, the walls melted and everything got weird. And, and then I thought, hey, there's some, there's, there's a little something more here to it than, than just the melty walls. And then I had further, deeper experiences with psilocybin and then LSD. Um, but then I had this like massive breakthrough experience with ayahuasca that just like shook shook me to my core. It just changed, it just altered in in the course of uh, well, really the very first night, it it altered everything that I thought about reality and the afterlife and my concepts of death. I would I had almost fallen into like an uh, nearly an atheistic viewpoint, and all that was just wiped away in in one ceremony. And then the following ceremonies, 
uh, accentuated that and, and furthered that experience. But I remember it was it was like a direct message during my my first night. It was like your podcast needs to change and you should talk more about these kind of things and people need to know about this and you should use your platform to uh, to work on that. So for me, it was almost like I was given a direct message from the from ayahuasca mm-hmm. itself to to uh, to go down that path. And I actually had to go through a lot of like trepidation and fear about that because I'm a professional. I have degrees. I have a job that drug tests and all these things, you know, these uh, these things that you have to worry about living this American life. And so I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready to be open with that, if I want to put my face and my name on that because that could, you know, that could really fuck up my life in a lot of ways. And she basically was like, just trust me, like the same way you've trusted to be here right now, you made the right decision to be here just trust me, this is the right decision. And so, you know, now we're on episode 40 and I've got to talk to uh, so many interesting and influential people in the space and, it, and you know, we're reaching people and I think a lot of people are learning from this. Um, so yeah, my, my psychedelic experiences directly led to the creation of this platform. Um, even though my early psychedelic experiences were not geared toward the, the mm-hmm. I didn't see them the way that I see them now. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think I can go back to that. Um, but uh, yeah, that's just a little aside from, from how I. Yeah, I mean, Clint, I'm the same way. I, I kind of left it out earlier, but um, I was visited during a high dose psilocybin experience uh, late 2018 and given direct instructions to write the psilocybin book and basically told that, you know, your, your path will be revealed at that point. And um you know, it kind of took me sticking my neck out there too. I'm obviously a professional and, and have law licenses and stuff like that. Not that they can necessarily, you know, come and get me for it, but you know, there is that risk. And so, you know, it, um, it, but it takes that leap of faith. And I'll tell you, uh, since I've just showed up in this space every day, uh, and made service a priority, I have lived abundantly, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I will continue to do it and, and serve people in this space. And, um, and love every minute of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Ian, you got anything to add there, bud? Yeah, just that uh, for me being able to participate in the kind of uh, church work I've done and, and drink ayahuasca has been uh, central to my spiritual development. It's helped me accept my last life, you know, past, present, and future and get over myself and then realize that I want to stay in the medicine space where I'm processing and experiencing things as they go and not have any kind of secularization or compartmentalization in my life. So I had the religious, let's say, background or platform or training, but to be able to do the medicine in that way, in that sacramental way in community, it's really key. And then that's what can help you hold that stuff and then do it in a, you know, in a, like I said, in a community fashion and, sh- and share it with other people. So I'm uh, very personally optimistic about what these kinds of churches can uh, offer uh, people in the country, you know, who are, who are searching for their uh, place to be able to uh, do the work with others that are, that are of like mind and heart. So. Sure, sure. Well, guys, I think we're coming up on an hour here. I'm going to let you guys go shortly. Do you Would you uh, like to tell our listeners where they can find your work? Um, tell us a little bit about Entheo Connect. Like I said, we're going to go into that in greater detail with Hector. Yeah. And like I'm, like I said, I'm open to having you on again as well to work to do it in tandem with Hector also. 
Um, I do kind of want to focus with Hector as well on Bufo. Uh, mm -hmm. Having recently had my first Bufo experience, uh, okay. I want to kind of talk to him about that because that was pretty mind-blowing as if you guys have you have used that medicine, I'm sure yeah. you're aware. Um, but tell us a little bit about where we can find you and your work and uh, get in contact with things like that. Yeah, so um, obviously my major project now is www.entheoconnect.com. Uh, right now, and we keep our membership low, but right now we're offering 90-day free membership. When you sign up, you'll get a free copy of my ebook, Psychedelics and Mental Health Psilocybin. Um, you know, right now just trying to populate the forum. So you know, anybody who comes over and signs up, we, we absolutely love and appreciate the support. Uh, we'll be having our full launch March 4th, which will include our ceremony retreat listings and our service providers. And obviously that will grow and evolve over time. Um, and then, yeah, so my, my book is Psychedelics and Mental Health Series Psilocybin. It's on Amazon. Um, I will be publishing the law of entheogenic churches in the United States within the week. Uh, it will also be on Amazon. Uh, and then, yeah, if you want to get a hold of me, it's uh, george.lake at entheoconnect.com. Feel free to reach out. Um, and then my Facebook, Greg Lake, which is my middle name, uh, you can find me there. Perfect. Ian? Yeah, folks can find me definitely by my last name pretty much anywhere on social media, like Ben Weiss, B-E-N-O-U-I-S. And I've got a website, lots of websites, The High Council, C O U. And SEL, THC, the High Council. But uh, yeah, uh, Greg and I are definitely doing more public collaborations like we're doing now, talking about this stuff to, again, share this knowledge and connect with other people that are doing this kind of work around these churches. Because we all need to get together, offer each other best practices. And, help each other out so we can all stay on the good side of the law, practice this stuff, bring down the scheduling artifice, and then uh, really go about our business without having to, to, to worry about too much once that happens. I know. That would be fantastic, right, to just be able to mind your own business and do your own thing <laughs> and not be worried about being persecuted yeah. for it. Uh, but, you know, maybe I'm just too paranoid, you know. Um You know, that's just kind of like what my life has been like. It's I, I've been in trouble for being involved in this counterculture, if you will, or, or whatever, it's caused me grief unnecessarily for being totally nonviolent and harmless offender. Um, so um, with all that being said, thank you guys for joining us on Psychedelicast. I really appreciate it. Everything you guys just said as far as contact will be linked uh, in the show notes uh, when this episode comes out. And Greg, probably I'll be hearing from you again in the future to talk Entheo Connect with yeah, Hector. Just let me know whenever you're ready. Uh, we can make it happen. Absolutely. And Ian, thank you so much. I'd love to reconnect with you to talk some other stuff too. I, I'd really like to talk about your uh, your experience as a veteran and, and, and you're working with plant medicines and that aspect to heal some of those uh, uh, experiences and traumas that you went through during that. So maybe I'll reconnect with you in the future to, to discuss some of that. Totally, totally love to talk about the intersection of veterans and these medicines because we know that's politically in society, you know, how it's going to change through veterans' uh, exemplarship. So, yeah, I'd love to do that. Absolutely. I've had several veterans on here talking about that kind of stuff, and those are some of my favorite conversations. So uh, I'll look forward to, to speaking with you further about that. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Thank you, bro. Take care. Peace. Peace. Bye. <laughs>
There you go, friends and family. Greg Lake and Ian Benwees. Once again, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's the best I got. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure talking to you. And I look forward to uh, chatting with both of those guys again in the future, um, maybe on some different topics. Looking forward to the, to the, uh, to the opening or to the uh, beginning of Intheo Connect. That is going to be a fantastic project. Um, our Not our next episode, but the following episode is going to be an interview with Greg's co-founder, Hector, who is a Bufo practitioner as well as the co-founder of EntheoConnect. So we're going to go a little bit deeper into EntheoConnect two episodes from now. So that'll be in about a month. Uh, be looking forward to that because I certainly am. We talk Bufo. We talk uh, this new uh, entheogenic church social media platform and uh, community that they're creating online. Very, very interesting stuff. These guys are very forward-thinking, and uh, they're doing something big here. So I'm looking forward to see how it all pans out. I got a funny feeling it's going to go very well. A couple more things I wanted to tell you before we leave about Ian. Uh, We forgot to mention this during the show, but Ian has a website. Uh, All of this will be linked in the show notes, by the way, but I just wanted to shout out Ian's website, Psychedelic Musal Man. That's Psychedelic M-U-S-A-L-M-A-N.com. Check out his website there for all things Ian. Also, check out his podcast. His podcast is called Psychedelic Timeshare, and that can be found on SoundCloud. And I would assume wherever uh, you're hearing this podcast, it's also available there. So check that out, Psychedelic Timeshare. Beyond that, guys, as we mentioned in the beginning of the show, a great way to support us is via our Patreon account, patreon.com slash psychedelicast for $3 a month. We only offer one tier. Maybe I'm going to build that out in some other tiers, but right now I'm happy with that. Enter the void with us. Tons of exclusive content, early video drops, uh, your chance to come on the show, uh, cultivation tips and updates, um, personal stories in no trip sitter format, episodes that no one else will get for free. Um, We would appreciate you joining us there, and I think you will get a lot of bang for your buck Uh, if you want to go that route. Let's do our quote and get on out of here let you guys have a good week. Here we go. And we'll leave you with a uh, quotable mainstay here on Psychedelicast. I don't think we've ever done this quote. I've done so many of these now, and I'm I'm assuming that I'll end up recycling these uh, ignorantly in the future. I may have done this one, but I don't think so. However, I think it speaks to the theme of this episode very well. Let's hear from our favorite uh, psilocybin philosopher, Mr. Terrence McKenna. Psychedelics are illegal not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open you up to the possibility that everything you know is wrong. Thank you all once again for joining us for another interview segment of Psychedelicast. It's always a pleasure, and I greatly appreciate that you guys take time out of your week to spend it with us in the attempt to pry open the third eye. We'll see you next time. Take good care. Mm-hmm.